konnichiwa, and welcome back to the Oki Oki Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. This is our monthly book club style podcast about Japanese movies from an Oklahoma perspective. That's right. Um, the Oki, uh, the first part of our show is big in Japanese, and then the Oki is uh, for Oklahomas, uh, Oklahomans, pardon me. It is a shorthand for those of us from the Oklahoma state tend to go by the term Oki. This month, we are discussing the famed Miyazaki movie Ponyo, but before we get into that, Brandon, what have you been watching lately? Well, I've been watching quite a bit of different stuff here. Um, this is our, uh, coming up a little over a month, uh, near a month and a half living in a new country, Bangkok, uh, Thailand, uh, is our new home station. So we're still Oklahomans at heart, but we're now in the heart of Thailand. And um, I've been filling up a lot of my time watching a number of different things. Thing of which that I did want to bring, though, that I watched most recently, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, the Cuphead show. Um, it's not maybe the most hmm. fitting in terms of some of the stuff we've been watching, but uh, the Cuphead video game is something that means a lot to myself and a friend of the show and friend of Donna and I, Nikki. Uh, we played through that game and very much enjoyed it. Nikki and I have a set of matching tattoos for the Cuphead video game. I've got Cuphead on my ankle and they have Mugman on theirs. And um, I finished watching that just the other day and uh, very much enjoyed it. It's a fun little little show. It's something that uh, I feel like I enjoyed it as an adult. I would have absolutely loved it as a child. Yeah, it's the Cuphead show has really interesting like old-timey vibes mixed with like 90s cartoons that you're not sure if they're meant for kids kind of Ren and Stimpy was a lot of the the biggest influence I saw mixed with a little bit of Animaniacs so I have not been watching much lately but I've been doing a lot of frantic reading for <laughs> some book reviews and actually the same day this comes out my book review for a novel obsession will also come out which that's the day a novel obsession comes out and, um, and who's that by it is by Caitlin Barash, B-A-R-A-S-C-H. It was it was good. It was kind of, I don't know, the premise is it's um, this woman who wants to write a novel ends up stalking her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend and uh, getting really close with her. And um, it's it's as unsettling as it sounds. So it was it was fun. It was weird. Well, with that out of the way, do you want to go ahead and jump into the plot of Ponyo? Absolutely. All right. Well, again, as always, we are going to spoil this film. So if you did want to watch it um, before we go through and kind of do a quick breakdown of the synopsis of this film, highly recommend doing that. Um, or if you want to go ahead and kind of get our take on it before you uh, jump into watching it, we'd be happy to go ahead and break that down for you now. But this is just a heads up for you that if you don't want the plot of this uh, spoiled for you, then just wanted to give you that heads up. And so. we watched this one on HBO Max. So that would be a good place to start if you have a subscription or access to that. So uh, Ponyo follows uh, two characters specifically, one being the character Sasuke, who is a small child, I believe between the ages of seven to nine. I want to say eight, honestly, but I believe around that age group. Am I correct? Yeah, I don't I don't know if we specifically learn his age, but I know the actors who play those kids are about nine, 
when they played or when this movie came out, eight or nine. Mm. It sounds right. Yeah. Um, follows Sasuke as well as the character of Ponyo or um, her uh, birth name, which is Brunhilde. Um, Brunhilde is an aquatic individual born uh, from a sea wizard and uh, the goddess of mercy. These two characters uh, begin to have their life destinies cross and pass over. I just want to pause real quick because we said a few things just now. A fish girl. I Before, I, was, I, I want to pause your pause if that's okay. This okay. is a Studio Ghibli film also. It's an animated film. I don't think we've said either of those right, things. Right, yes. Um, so if you're familiar with Studio Ghibli's work, be it Princess Mononoke um, or Howl's Moving Castle or Spirited Away, I believe is probably the most prevalent film of of the studio that'll be kind of harkens to the very similar animation style as those right and also storyline wise like fairy tale esque right? right um but set in modern time now so, unpause my pause continue with your pause right so back to my pause i just wanted to reiterate fish girl ponyo born of sea wizard and sea goddess right. of Mercy. Right. So uh, just just so you could get that sticking in your noggin, Ponyo wants to live with Sasuke because she determines that she loves him and he loves her and he promises to protect her little goldfish self. And um, she she very much wants to stay with him. But her sea wizard father, Fujimoto, casts his waves out and takes her back into the ocean, back under his care. Because he is concerned that if Ponyo arrives onto land and continues to stay there, it will set about an unbalance within nature that would inevitably flood the entire planet. So he does not want that to happen. So although his intentions seem kind of intense, they are good intentions uh, nonetheless. So the thing is, going against her father's wishes... Ponyo does this anyway. She accepts the new identity as Ponyo instead of Brunhilde, and she magically grows herself hands and feet and teeth because she wants to be a human like Sosuke and um, reunites with him. But um, with this, in the process, releases a bunch of magic. There is this um, kind of upheaval of pretty severe weather and, and tidal waves because... Ponyo has made this decision to uh, come upon land and profess and commit her love as a as an eight year old to <laughs> Sasuke. Huge tsunami and floods the whole town. There's there's some chaos and turmoil happening while Sasuke and Ponyo are reunited. Sasuke's mother Lisa works at the senior center, and when the weather gets really bad, she ends up going to the senior center to help out. After taking Ponyo and Sasuke in. Um, but she doesn't come back in the morning. So Sasuke and Ponyo set out to find her. And their adventure begins and they are able to, with the help of Ponyo's magic, uh, traverse the high ocean waters and um, inevitably track down where uh, Sasuke's mother is, which is an underwater bubble uh, created by Ponyo's mother. Uh, or pardon me, Ponyo, well, yes, Ponyo's mother and father. And father, yeah. Ponyo's mother insists that uh, Ponyo arriving on land will be okay as long as Sasuke's love is true for her. 
Um, so it's kind of a test of love for these two characters here. But Anyways. but if they don't pass the test, Ponya will turn into sea foam. That's bad. The stakes are high. That and the whole world will be flooded, like we both said. Right, yeah. So, yeah, that's... But ultimately, Sasuke does pass and agrees that no matter what form Ponyo is in, he will always love her. And then she turns into a girl, loses her magical powers, and they assumedly live happily ever after. And that's the story of Ponyo. That it is. What did you think of this movie, Donna? Oh, I loved it. It was magical, and it was sweet, and it was funny, and um, just a very comfortable, nice movie. What about you? Yeah, I, I super loved it. You had seen this before, correct? Yeah. So years and years ago with our friend Zach, I ended up watching like the six core Miyazaki Studio Ghibli films. And this was one of the ones we watched, but it was so long ago. I just I didn't really remember a lot of it. Yeah, I thought it was really great. I thought that um, it was one of those that I, one of the reasons that I do 2D or not 2D with with Nikki is because I am a firm believer that there are so many fantastic animated films that I think that children all over the world should see that have a wonderful lessons that really expand the creativity and imagination of what the world can be both in you know reality as well as in the creative universe and I think all of Studio Ghibli films fall into that category. I cannot think of a single one that I would not highly, highly recommend for the watching of any child. Um, no matter the the amount of challenging content material behind it, I think that it's that they're all very, very wonderful. Was Grave of the Fireflies Studio Ghibli, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was he, not Miyazaki, but it was Studio Ghibli. Even that one with its very heavy content matter and. and kind of hard to stomach at times material, I I think that it kind of lays the groundwork for a very important subject matter and something that I would say would be required watching for any child that I was in charge of, I guess. Yeah, all of these films also, at least that I've seen so far, they give me this sense of like peace, like they could put me to sleep, even as an adult. And I, I actually watched Howl's Moving Castle like, three or four times now. And I think every time I've fallen asleep because it's just magical and dreamy. And it just, even though it's exciting and entertaining, it's just comforting as well. They're very nice films. You know, that's another one I've actually never seen before. I, I it's, it's up there. I mean, I, I've seen spirited away, I think twice now. And I think that that's one that I, I kind of have down pretty well in my mind. But other than that, that's really the only other, uh, Studio Ghibli film besides Grave of the Fireflies, I feel pretty accustomed to, but I would love to rewatch Princess Mononoke. I know we we spoke about mm. that shortly after finishing Ponyo was how much I I remember thinking that film was very awesome, but I watched it at such a young age that I don't fully remember it. Kind of like Howl's Moving Castle with you, but a little, you know, different circumstances, but still the same. Well, with that, do you want to go ahead and jump into uh, our first topic? You're up first this month. Yeah. So first I wanted to talk about Goldfish. Um, in the movie, they often refer to Ponyo as a goldfish. Now you're talking about the little orange crackers that we eat here in the United States, right? <laughs> I'm talking about the real life fish that those are mimed after. I don't know if that's crafted. Based upon? Based upon, yeah. <laughs> they're... <laughs> Never heard that, that verb they're, before. They're a mimic of 
the fish, you know, my mimic. I don't know. There's something there. Listen, I, I got deep in an etymology hole actually with goldfish. So bear with me. Well, let's dig into it. So first of all, goldfish are carp, right? So they're in that family and they're native to East Asia. Now, originally carp were food fish. Carp in the wild can actually get pretty big and they're good to eat. Asian cultures were actually breeding carp for food early, early in history. Like we have record of breeding carp for food as early as like 400, the year 400. With breeding them for food came genetic mutations. And as these genetic mutations occurred, farmers would set those aside as rare specimens and these would continue. And so it was actually a natural genetic mutation that caused them to have these gold, well, gold looking, it's yellow and red and orange colorations to them. But as they started setting them aside and breeding those, uh, they started growing into what we now know as different variations of goldfish. So it's a freshwater fish, which I thought was interesting because Ponyo is found in the ocean. Like that's where she lives. And when she's brought to land, I remember in the movie while we were watching, he, he puts her in a bucket and fills that bucket with tap water. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Put an ocean fish in freshwater. <laughs> like that won't work. Well, it turns out koi or carp or goldfish can actually live in brackish water. So they can actually withstand a certain amount of salinity in the water and be fine, mm. although they are actually freshwater fish. So interesting to know. Now, I think we recognize koi as being like decorative pond fish all across the world, really. Like they, they became really popular as pond fish because they're very pretty. Um, they come in different lots of different colors. They can grow to a nice size so that they're easily visible in the pond. And they're really hardy. They're very sturdy. They can actually survive freezes in the pond as long as it doesn't freeze all the way through and there's enough oxygen in the pond. And so they're really great decorative fish. But they were not bred to be decorative until relatively recently that actually became a popular hobby in Japan is decoratively breeding koi fish. There's tons of variations. If you have extra time, I would recommend going and searching some different goldfish because there's variations based on color and their tail shape and their body shape and their eyes. If you've ever seen those goldfish with like huge, weird bulbous eyes, like that's a specific way to breed goldfish for that. Um, but they also have, I mean, literally they're called like fancy goldfish with intricate, delicate tails. Um, but the most common is those koi fish you find in ponds that have nice, you know, white and red and orange and yellow and black patterns. Other than that, I just thought it was interesting. Um, two things. One, they can vary in length from one inch to 14 inches. And how this varies is based on their space that they live in. A goldfish in a tiny aquarium will only grow to like one or two inches because it just doesn't have space to get bigger. And a goldfish in a 
pond might actually grow to be quite big, um, six inches maybe. But a goldfish in the wild, a koi or a carp, will grow to be over a foot long. So it's, uh, it's neat how it kind of grows to fit its space. And then the other thing is uh, the etymology of koi. Because in Japanese, koi literally just means carp. It's a word for a type of fish. And if you write it out, the left radical is literally the symbol for fish. The right radical is the symbol for like village or hometown. The interesting part is koi can also mean romance or love, which is very applicable for the movie we watched, Ponyo. And it the bottom radical for that is the radical for heart. So it's pronounced the same, but it's a different symbol. And um, this is a common play on words actually in Japan. And a lot of times they're symbols of love because of that. So yeah, just thought that was neat and I wanted to share it. Interesting. I, I would have very much thought that the English translation that we watched would have somehow butchered it and it wasn't actually a goldfish because if I'm being very honest, the fish form of Ponyo really looked nothing like a goldfish. Yeah, it, it really did not look like a goldfish at all. Very interesting. Do you ever have a goldfish growing up? No, I only ever had guppies. What about you? I had beta fish. I had a lot of beta fish, but I never had any any goldfish to my memory. I feel like I probably did at some point, but I just don't. I don't remember. I did. Well, they're supposed to be very sturdy. And yeah. despite what people say, they actually have a really good memory. Like, they're really interesting yeah, fish yeah. if you want to dive down that rabbit hole. You can train them. I've heard that where you can kind of teach them to, to jump through hoops and stuff. Yeah, like they, they'll start recognizing their owner versus strangers. They can recognize four primary colors. They have two ways to hear. They're really interesting fish. I did have a cousin accidentally kill one of their goldfish once by um, accidentally dumping the entire feeder uh, of food filled oh, no. into their tank. So that was unfortunate. Oh, no. But, um, well, wonderful. Thank you for bringing that. Um, speaking of fish in the sea, I wanted to talk about my first thing, if that's okay. Absolutely. I'd love for you to. I wanted to talk about trash, um, specifically trash in the ocean. Um, there is a big component to this film that focuses on humans' tendency to dump their waste into the sea and the effects that that has on the ecosystem and biology of the sea. It is one of the reasons that Ponyo's father disdains humans and has renounced his humanity um, is because of humans' impact upon the sea. And I think that if you are a human alive today, it is probably a little bit challenging to deny our impact on ocean and aquatic life. Um, so I'm not going to really waste too much time or bum you out too much with statistics or anything along those lines. Um, but uh, I did want to kind of talk about a little bit of the positive side of things. Um, in order to do that, I do have to bum us out just a little bit. The first thing I kind of wanted to talk about in regards to aquatic and ocean pollution um, is something known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, um, which is not as much fun as the Garbage Patch Kids um, <laughs> make it sound to be. But um, I'm going to read just the, the wiki kind of headline here for the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And as I read this, keep in mind, there's also one that is the North American Garbage Patch, which is um, in the Atlantic Ocean as well. So this is not something that is just in one of our uh, wonderful oceans, but in many. Um, so the Great Pacific Garbage Patch um, 
is also known as the Pacific Trash Vortex, Vortex um, is a garbage patch of marine debris particles, um, and it is, of course, in the Pacific Ocean, uh, located at roughly 135 west and between, pardon me, 135 west and uh, 155 west uh, degrees, and then 35 and 42 north degrees uh, in terms of longitude and latitude. And it's just a collection of trash and uh, floating debris particles of plastic um, that have all been, of course, contributed by um, us, the humans. Uh, in reading upon it, um, it is um, estimated to be 1.6 million square kilometers in size. That's roughly uh, 620,000 square miles. That's and huge. Yes, it is very, very huge. And um, one of the things that it's kind of a common misnomer uh, regarding it is that it is something that looks like a massive floating island of trash. And uh, that's actually not the case. If you were, were to go out there and just be on a boat, you almost wouldn't be able to see it. A lot of it, or even if you were diving in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a lot of it are these microplastic uh, particles and, and small floating debris that are so far beneath the surface that at times you really wouldn't be able to tell. So satellite images don't even pick it up. That is kind of a bummer. And I wanted to kind of shift from that um, to a project that is working to eradicate that. Um, and I wanted to talk about the ocean cleanup. Um, it is a nonprofit that was founded by their CEO, uh, Boyan Slat. Um, he is a gentleman from the Netherlands uh, who, at the time of this recording, is 27 years old. He created this 330-foot-long um, floating funnel-type system that, um, according to the Ocean Cleanups uh, records, is set to uh, eradicate, I believe it was... Um, a large portion, I'll say, because I don't have the exact percentage here, um, the majority of the ocean's plastics by the year 2040. Thus far, um, it looks to have gathered uh, within a week, a week's time millions of articles and, and pieces of trash. And um, it's uh, it's kind of a wonderful uh, project that they have set up here. There, there are some doubts in its ability as to to actually have that big of an impact on the pollution in the ocean. Um, a lot of people claim the fact that a lot of those particles and pieces of trash are much further down and deep that aren't able to be picked up by um, the ocean cleanups contraption, which they've nicknamed Ginny, by the way. But th that being said, it's, I mean, here in our notes, there, there are links to their website and, and you can easily see the footage of the, of the trash that's being picked up by it. And it's really remarkable. So, I just kind of wanted to do a little bit of the good and the bad there um, with uh, some of the components of, of humans impact on the ocean. I don't know. That was, that was kind of, kind of what I brought. By any chance, do you know what they're doing with the trash that they pick up from the ocean? I do actually. Thank you for asking. Um, they are uh, recycling that specifically. They have a, um, uh, an incentive that is caught and not released is what they refer to it as um, where they recycle the material that they they pick up the plastic and they turn it into uh, sunglasses that you can purchase that further benefits their nonprofit. Um, that's that's really cool. Yeah, they they, they are a, a little on the higher end of price. Um, they they are two hundred dollars sunglasses, uh, so <laughs> that is a little bit high. But again, it is a not profit nonprofit, so um, that is those funds go back into uh, making Ginny be able to further clean up the oceans and succeed in getting rid of the plastic from our underwater life. That's 
That is really cool though, because I don't know. I, a lot of times I hear about efforts to like, to help the environment. And then I wonder, well, but how, how does that work? Like what happens after you pick up that trash? And the answer is, I don't know. So that's really nice. Like that's an expensive pair of sunglasses, but a very cool pair. So can I tell you about my second thing? I would love for you to. I wanted to talk about tsunami legends. So there's one of the old ladies that Lisa, Sosuke's mom, takes care of is extremely upset when she sees Sosuke with his little human-faced goldfish, Ponyo, because she's convinced that having him bring this fish on the land will bring a tsunami which technically she ends up being right. And I wondered if, is that based on anything real? And it turns out a lot of other people also wondered this. So the main tsunami legend is actually not related to goldfish or bringing them onto the land at all. But first I wanted to just cover some base ground. What is a tsunami? Hmm. So that's actually a Japanese word. Tsunami. And where Nami means wave, I believe Tsu is harbor. And there's a lot of different words for this in different languages because it's a common problem and it's a flooding issue, right? So it's just a big, big wave that is typically caused by an earthquake or like an underwater volcano eruption. Something happens underwater that displaces the water and causes a huge wave that actually grows as it moves towards land. And so by the time it hits land, it's astronomically larger than your typical wave, which can cause it to reach places that are generally far out of reach of the ocean. So if you were to be on the beach and see one coming, which I hope you never are, you would see the ocean recede rapidly way, way far out. And if you ever see this, you go as high up as quick as possible to get away because a huge wave is coming. And there's actually a video I linked in the show notes just because I've always been interested. I watched a, I watched a science program once about like tsunamis and I thought it was really interesting that the world could do this, but I linked a YouTube video about how to survive a tsunami, which I thought was really interesting because it also kind of shows how a tsunami works. With the science and definitions out of the way, one of the big legends about tsunamis in Japan is that it's caused by a giant underwater catfish. Not quite a goldfish, Mm. but there's this giant catfish underwater. There's a god who keeps this catfish in line, but sometimes this god gets distracted, goes off and does other things as gods do, And the catfish starts flailing rapidly and causes earthquakes and eventually tsunamis. And that's how they come. Now, there actually is a weird precedence with this legend. In 1855, an eel fisherman spotted an unusually active catfish in a riverbed. It's a predictor of an earthquake, he decided. And later that night, there actually was the 1855 Edo earthquake. And so he was right, but are those things related, right? There's a difference between correlation and causation. But in the 1930s, 
a pair of Japanese seismologists determined that, yes, um, there actually is an indication that catfish can potentially detect earthquakes. Um, they demonstrated that catfish in aquariums, aquaria, were able to predict earthquakes with 80% accuracy. Interesting. Yeah. There's there's some substance to that legend. I like how a lot of legends come from somebody somewhere going, you know what? <laughs> this is how it is. And people are like, no kidding. And they're like, yep, <laughs> it's catfish. And they're like, all right, I guess I believe you because it's the ancient times. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, I mean, catfish are bottom feeders, right? Like they would feel that happening, but they're also bottom feeders that surface. It's not weird for them to come up to the surface. Right. But it's strange that he would have known that because I don't believe that in the times of thinking of this gentleman's thinking, they were aware that earthquakes were the cause of tsunamis. You know what I mean? Right. Well, to be fair, he just decided it was an indicator of an earthquake. Right. But regardless, it's interesting how, because this um, this legend predates um, both the story of the fishermen and the 1855 earthquake, and obviously way predates the scientific demonstration that catfish could potentially predict earthquakes. So that's interesting how, I mean, even before a random guy decided hey, that catfish is acting weird, it's an earthquake, people just made this legend that happened to be kind of right. That's still very different from the legend that was cited in Ponyo. So I did some more searching, and Ponyo is a ningyo, which is basically a mermaid. So that's made from the symbols for human and fish put together, and it's a fish with a human face, just as the old lady described Ponyo. Weirdly, it's um, one of the first descriptions I found is that its flesh is pleasant tasting, and anyone who eats it will gain longevity. I'm glad there was no scenes of Ponyo being eaten. I want to throw right. that out there. Yeah, um, me too. We all grew to love Ponyo. And um, there's, there's a legend about a fisherman who caught such a fish, and... Uh, tried to feed it to a bunch of his companions. And one of them went into the kitchen and saw that it had a human face and warned all the other fishermen not to eat it. But one of the fishermen got really drunk. And so while all the other fishermen were wrapping up the fish secretively in paper so they could dispose of it, um, he forgot and he kept it with him and took it home. And upon arriving home, his daughter demanded a present and he thoughtlessly gave her the ningyo flesh, which she consumed before he came to his senses and could take it from her. And this girl lived to be 800 years old. Oh, my. So that's what happens if you eat mermaid. Now, this is the part that deals with the legend described in Ponyo, is catching a ningyo was believed to bring storms and misfortune. And fishermen who caught... Ningyo were said to throw them back into the ocean for this reason. So that's where that comes from, I assume. Also, just another fun mermaid thing. Um, if a ningyo washes onto the beach, it's said to be an omen of war or calamity. So if you think about it, 
because actually Ponyo kind of washed up onto the shore a little bit. Maybe Sosuke actually saved them from something worse. I don't know. Sosuke stopped the war. Yeah, maybe. What you didn't see in, in Ponyo was that the the forces were just on the other side of the mountain. Right, exactly. And then he picked Ponyo up and saved her from the glass jar. And Ginny came and picked up all the trash. And, <laughs> you know, the world was better for it. But, uh, Brandon, what is your second thing? Well, first off, thank you for talking about that. I, I appreciate getting some clarity on that. I always kind of thought that there was some kind of mistranslation, like I said, with goldfish. So I, I'm, I'm thankful to know that the English translation for Ponyo in terms of the dub was was accurate to an extent. Yeah. And it was just interesting. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about is going to be kind of very different from the oceanic and aquatic type conversations that we've been having. And I want to talk a little bit about Morse code. Um, at one point in the film, uh, Sasuke and his mother uh, communicate with uh, Sasuke's father, who is a sailor of some kind. I don't believe it's specifically said what type of sailor he is. Um, right. Using Morse code. Um, and before I talk about this, I just want to take a quick aside here and say that I had another topic that I was going to talk about. And I told Donna and we both agreed that it was a very good topic. <laughs> and and then when I went to research it, neither of us could remember what it was I said. So after, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of really racking our brains, neither of us could remember what it was. So instead, I'm going to talk about Morse code. I'm still very happy to talk about it. I found some very interesting things. I just thought that was kind of a funny aside. Maybe maybe if we do end up remembering it, we can just like tweet about it. There you go. Um, so if you're not familiar, Morse code is a form of communication uh, using a series of either dots or uh, dashes. So a dot is a fast beat and then dashes are longer uh, beats and they are Roman alphabetic numbers and characters uh, that were created for uh telegraph uh, communication. So before the telephone and before voice was able to be transmitted, there was the uh, telegraph. So it was a series of dots that were sent through uh, electronic wire, and that's how communication would be sent. But it could also be sent by uh, flashing lights um, or any kind of way that you could get uh, information that dots and dashes sent out. Um, so if you do take a look at our notes, I actually have the Morse alphabet and uh, one through uh, pardon me, zero through nine uh, in Morse code listed out there. But I'm looking at it now and I'm mesmerized. It, it's very interesting. At one point, I, I remember I had learned, I had memorized the Morse alphabet. Um, but what I had not learned about was uh, actually the gentleman who is uh, named for the Morse code, Samuel Morse. Um, so that's actually who I wanted to spend some time talking about today. Um, Samuel Morse, who uh, was born Sam Samuel Finley Brees Morse, uh, was born in uh, 1791 uh, and lived until 1872. He was an inventor as well as a painter. Um, so if you do get a chance to look at our show notes, he was actually a really good painter. I, I have an image of his self-portrait here. He painted in a very real realism style. I don't know, sometimes when you hear famous people who are famous for something other than painting, and then you see that they've they're painters. It's not, I don't know, it's sometimes it's maybe a little bit more abstract or um, surreal or something. These are um, very, very detailed and realistic paintings. Um, he has a self-portrait that I have here in the notes. Um, one of his earlier masterpieces was uh, Dying Hercules. 
Um, and then I also have uh, the Chapel of the Virgin of uh, Subaco here. Um, so definitely check those out. Very interesting uh, uh, work here by Samuel Morris. But I'm looking at them now, and I'm really blown away because I I glanced through your notes and I saw the portrait of Morse, Mr. Morse, and I didn't realize that was a self portrait. I I assumed that was a commission because it looks like a professional portrait of a person it's very impressive yeah but uh, i want to do a quick biography here of uh, samuel moore so he was born in charleston massachusetts uh to father uh who was his name was pastor jedediah morse uh, his mother was elizabeth ann finley brees uh, his dad was a preacher in the calvinist faith and supporter of the american federalist party and his mother of course was not credited with anything because um, history is not very kind to women. So happy International Women's History Month um, to someone who I was not able to find any more information on, unfortunately. So um, just wanted to point that out in how wonderful history can be to women, unfortunately. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you for the acknowledgement and the shout out. I actually, that's really nice. Thank I you. mean, I appreciate you thanking me, but it is in a very real sense, one of the least I could, well, least I could do. And <laughs> But um, Sam went uh, to Yale College uh, to receive instruction on subjects of uh, religious philosophy, mathematics, as well as the science of horses, uh, which was kind of interesting. And uh, in 1818, he uh, got married to uh, Lucretia Walker, uh, and um, she unfortunately passed away uh, not even seven years later of a heart attack shortly after the birth of their third child. Um, He then went on to marry again in 1848, uh, to Sarah Elizabeth Griswold, um, and they um, had four children. So he had a total of seven children uh, amongst two two women. And he was, again, very uh, crucial in the invention of the telegraph. And while that was being worked with uh, the help of Leonard Gale as well as Alfred Vail, I believe shortly before they began worth, work on the concept of telegraphy, William Cook and Professor Charles uh, Wheatstone uh, also began working on early studies of the practice of sending communication through electronic pulses. And because they had a little bit more time as well as financial backing, they actually reached success with long form telegraphy before Samuel Morse did. Um, That being said, because of Morse's persistence, um, it's not one of those instances where somebody was miscredited and it should actually be, um, you know, Wheatstone code or, you know, cook code or something along those lines. Although cook code is pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> hadn't said that out loud. Um, it, Morse really did kind of, you know, work his butt off to, to get this telegraphy to work. He, he stopped one of his more prevalent paintings, um, at, at learning about this practice to, like hold on a second i want to i want to invent morse code (laughs) basically um which is just kind of really interesting to me and then it was in 1838 uh in morristown new jersey at uh, the speedwell ironworks where um using two miles of cable um one of the things that um samuel morse was greatly attributed to um, achieving the long distance of morse code was um, the use of relays. So uh, initially, when the electronic pulses would be sent, they weren't able to to reach great distances. And it wasn't until Samuel Morse applied these relays into the wiring that the code could actually be sent further distances. 
Um, and that was what finally kind of pushed telegraphy to being something very useful, of course, to things such as the railway. And in 1838, the first public message that was sent there in Morriston, New Jersey, was uh, a patient waiter, uh, pardon me, a patient waiter is no loser, um, which I thought was interesting. Super, yeah. Um, and actually, initially, there, there was no funding for this. The government had no interest in using this. Um, so he took the patent um, over to the UK and tried to find funding there and was also rejected because uh, Cook and Wheatstone had um, already had kind of the groundwork laid there for uh, telegraphy. And then he came back and it was with the help of uh, Maine Congressman uh, Francis Ormand Jonathan Smith um, who uh, kind of began to back Morse and the use of uh, telegraphy as communication that allowed for um, that to begin having wider spread use. Many believe that's actually the first instance where uh, government support was given and donated to a private researcher, especially and funded uh, for something that was applied research as opposed to like basic or theoretical research. It was somebody uh, providing a private research for something that was actively being worked upon. Wow. Because, I mean, if I remember correctly, that's basically what ended up happening with, like, GPS and the Internet, right? Yeah, I believe so. So that's a big a big foundation that got laid. Yeah. But that was Morse code um, and a kind of a brief history of, of uh, Samuel Morse. Later on, he went to develop the alphabet that is known as Morse code um, today. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Um, well, that's going to do it with our things that we've brought that are interesting to us in regards to researching the film Ponyo. Do you have a lesson for us? Yeah. So our Japanese lesson this month, we're going to learn how to say, I promise to love you no matter what. Because that is what Sosuke eventually promises to Ponyo. So altogether, the phrase is, Nariga attemo aisuru koto o yakusoku shimasu. Nani ga? So, <laughs> nani ga attemo, that's the no matter what part. Nani ga attemo. Aisuru koto. Aisuru koto. That is to love. O yakusoku shimasu. O yakusoku shimasu. And that's to promise. Nani ga attemo aisuru koto o Yagasoko. Yakusoko. Yakusoko shimasu. Mm. Nani ga attemo aisuru koto yakusoko shimasu. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, one last little segment. Um, what did this remind you of? Uh, this is a little kind of challenging. I think really for me, it reminded me a lot of, you know, I'm, this is going to be very vague, but just kind of 90s cartoons that, kind of just went wild i can't even think of any specific instance because i completely forgot about this segment sorry um <laughs> but uh i don't know what did it remind you of I, I don't know help me out here okay so the most obvious is the little mermaid right okay very similar story fish girl falls in love with a man determines she has to become a human but it also kind of reminded me of like Land Before Time, which might partially be because they like released the crustacean period of oceanic life or something, but um, it also had that kind of like wondrous feel to it. 
So I also say Fern Gully. I feel like it, it kind of harkened back. I think we're both kind of hitting on that note of '90s or early 2000s cartoons that mm, like mm-hmm. that. But Fern Gully was definitely up there as well. Well, I think that's going to do it for us. Um, after this is going to be the fact check section. Um, next month, what are we watching, Donna? Or I can tell you if you'd like. I would love for you to tell us. We're going to watch Suicide Club by <gasps> Sion Sono. Um, Ooh, spooky April movie. Yeah, which if that name sounds familiar, uh, last year we watched The Forest of Love, which was also directed by Sono. Um, so we're going to go back in time now. Uh, the Forest of Love came out in 2019. We're going to go way back to um, Mr. Sono's, one of his most highest regarded films, uh, is Suicide Club 2001. So um, definitely going to be quite a flip from Ponyo, uh, the, this G-rated comedy, uh, wonderful film here for family to Suicide Club, which obviously is not. Yeah. Ponyo, safe for kids. Suicide Club, probably not. Yes. But uh, we will come back and discuss it with you on April 15th. But stick around. Donna's going to do a quick fact check section and let us know what all we said right and wrong. And um, we will talk to you all next month. Until then, Jamata. Jamata. Hi, this is Donna, and I'm back with your fact check. First, we couldn't remember how old Solske was in the movie. According to ponyo.fandom.com, he is five years old, as evidenced by his attendance at Pamiwadi Nursery School. To our credit, he's a pretty smart, mature five-year-old, and the American voice actors for Ponyo and Sasuke were both born in 2000, making their voices around eight years old. Then, we discussed other Studio Ghibli films and specifically referenced Grave of the Fireflies. This was the subject of our fourth film as a podcast, so if you're interested, please give it a listen. Later, when Brandon teaches us about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, he mentions its size, roughly 620,000 square miles. This is correct, but to put it into perspective, that's roughly the size of Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi combined, with about 7,000 square miles to spare. You could fit Japan four times over in the same square mileage. Then, Brandon couldn't remember how much of the ocean's plastic the ocean cleanup planned to eradicate in the next 18 or so years. Their goal is, quote, to have removed 90% of floating ocean plastic by 2040, unquote. Next, when I discussed catfish, I described them as bottom feeders. This is partially true. While they are not exclusively bottom feeders, they do feed and spend time on the bottom. Lastly, during our Japanese lesson, I mispronounced the verb to promise. I said, Yakusoku, but it's actually Yakusoku. Yakusoku shimasu. I promise I'll do better next time. That's it for the fact check. Join us next month for a riveting discussion of Shon Sono's 2001 film Suicide Club, which is available to rent or buy on Apple TV and Amazon Video. Tell us what you think about it or what topics you'd like us to discuss 
on Twitter or Instagram at Show. That's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. Or send an email to okieokieshow at gmail.com. And if we've missed anything in the fact check, please let us know. Until next time, kiwotskete.